I don't know if you're aware of this. It's Easter. It's Easter Sunday. Resurrection Day. But do you realize that there is really nothing significant about today? I hate to burst your bubble. I know you got all dressed up. Some of you are wearing a tie. Some of you a bow tie. Some of us have gotten out of control. It's Easter Sunday. We dress our best. We might not have stepped in, into a church in years, but this is that day where we're gonna go. It's Easter. People who have nothing to do with Jesus are tweeting, he is risen. It's Easter. But there's nothing significant about this day. At all, actually. This is not the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's not as though that today is the day that he has risen. As a matter of fact, he was risen. Like he has risen. It took place a while ago. And historically, the church, this idea of let's setting aside one Sunday a year to celebrate the resurrected Jesus, that's a farce as well. If you study history and you look back over the development of Easter, you'll come to find that the early church, the first couple hundred years of the church, they didn't pick out one day a year to celebrate the risen Lord. Historically, they did pick a day to celebrate the resurrected Jesus. It just so happened to be every single Sunday. That's why this group of Jews shifted their worship from traditionally being based on a Saturday to now taking place on a Sunday. You read through the book of Acts and you'll find that they met on the first day. Why? Well, to recognize Jesus' resurrection. And so as we were praying about what to do with Easter, the Lord really impressed on my heart and confirmed it through others that it was like, let's treat this morning like every morning. Let's treat this morning like we would do every Sunday. And instead of doing special music or a special message, instead of having some aspect of the program just unique for this morning, our conviction was, let's just do what we always do. Let's worship the Lord and let's study his word. Now, if you're new this morning, here at Calvary 316, we study the Bible expositionally. That means that we get into a book of the Bible, we start with chapter 1, verse 1, and we just work our way through till we get to the end, and then we find another book. There's lots of them, and we just keep going. So we study the Bible expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's kind of our method. It's not topical. It's not the whim of the pastor. It's the way that God ordains things to be set up. So we kind of had this conviction. We're just going to do what we always do. And you know, if we get to Easter Sunday and it's, <laughs> it's a different kind of a text, we're just going to roll with it. We're just going to allow the Lord to ordain what this morning's message will be about. And this was months ago. It just so happens that in chapter 9, where we find ourselves, and we are just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, this is where we are. This is the 29th study through the nine chapters of Mark. So it's not a coincidence, but we're looking at the transfiguration. And it is a powerful, powerful scene, a powerful story, a powerful event. 
Now, because some of you weren't with us last week, we're going to begin by just reading verses 2 and 3 to get a running start. These were verses that we looked at in greater depth last Sunday. Then we'll dive into verse 4, but we're going to give a little context for what's been taking place. We read, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, just the four of them. And we're told that Jesus was transfigured, metamorphosized before them. And his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Now we noted four particular reasons last Sunday why Jesus was transfigured before them. First, in the transfiguration, Jesus was allowing these disciples, Peter, James, and John, to see Jesus for who he really was. The great miracle here isn't that Jesus was transfigured. The great miracle is that for the previous 30 years, he was able to keep God's glory, the glory of the Father, at bay with human flesh. But in this moment, the glory of God was was revealed, it came shining forth from within. So Jesus is allowing them to see him for who he really was. Secondly, Jesus was providing evidence here that he had lived a sinless life. His transfigured state, we're told that he was exceedingly white, such as no launderer could replicate. There is a supernatural element, there is a purity. Jesus is showing who he really is, and what we're seeing is holiness and righteousness and purity. Jesus is going to the cross, and as we discussed on Friday night, to be a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin, Jesus had to be sinless. And in this moment, he's going to leave and make his way to Jerusalem to pay for the sins of the world, but he's making it clear that he's pure, that he's sinless. The third thing is that Jesus was showing the disciples the path to glory. Though our path, as it was with Jesus, will inevitably bring us to the cross, and Jesus has just finished teaching them this, that to truly follow him, one must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. So Jesus has been talking and teaching about the way of the cross, and though the way of the cross is part of all of our spiritual journeys, the transfiguration makes it clear that the cross, the pain and the death and the suffering of the cross, though in our journey, is not our destination. The cross. The cross might be the path, but resurrected glory is and always has been our final destiny. The fourth thing that we noted concerning why Jesus was transfigured is that he was demonstrating to the disciples that he was in total control. And why would this be important? It was important because Jesus was going to make his way to Jerusalem and a series of events was about to transpire that would seem to be out of control. Things would spiral from this point forward in such a way that the disciples didn't see it coming, that the disciples freak out about, and that they might have been inclined to think that Jesus was a victim, that things were happening out of his control, that things had spiraled to the point that, that Jesus, his destiny was now no longer in his hands. And yet, 
And this moment where he's transfigured and they see him and there's this awe-inspiring moment, the event's incredible, that they would carry this with them. All the way to Jerusalem, you would have to think, Peter, James, and John would nudge themselves, when is he going to do it again? When is it going to happen again? Jesus is making it clear that he's in total control. Well, we're told in verse 4, in the middle of the scene, that Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, we have no idea how long any of this is taking place. We don't really know how long Jesus was transfigured talking with Moses and Elijah before the disciples awoke from their slumber. Luke tells us they were asleep. We don't know how long as they wake up seeing the transfigured Jesus. We don't know how long they just sat there watching or listening. We know it was long enough because their eavesdropping revealed to them two important things. First, it revealed to them what was being discussed. They waited long enough to know what Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were talking about. Now, we're not given this indication in Mark's account, but in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, we're told that they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, there are two important details that we, we gather here from the language that Luke uses. We're told that they spoke of his decease. Now the Greek word for decease is exodus, which can literally be translated exodus. They were talking about Jesus's exodus, an exodus he was about to accomplish or literally to complete or to fulfill or to carry into effect. Now the language, it implies that they were not just discussing the cross. It wasn't that they were just discussing Jesus' death. They were discussing something much greater than just that. They were discussing an exodus. Now, we don't have time to get into the particulars of this, but Jesus was about to complete an exodus that took place many, many, many moons before where God called his people out of Egypt to a land of promise an exodus that they never fully fulfilled. And as a matter of fact, we find that during the time of Jesus' death, what was he busy doing? He was busy liberating those who were captive, those who had yet to complete an exodus. We also know that they were eavesdropping long enough to figure out who the two characters were. I don't know if, if you've kind of thought that. Like, how was it that we're able to know that this was Elijah and Moses. I mean, it's not as though they had pictures, right? It wasn't as though that they kind of pull my strategy. If I see someone, I recognize the face, and I'm like, I can't find the name. I pull out my phone, I go to Facebook, and I start scrolling through to try to find the name with the face. It's not as though that Peter turns to James and then to John, and they're like, who in the world are those two jokers? And they pull out their tablets, and they're like searching through to try to like match a picture of Elijah and Moses with the people that they're seeing. How in the world? It's not as though they had name tags, right? Like heavenly name tags, where it's like, hey, it's, it's Moses, and wow, I can read, that's Elijah. Like, how do we know that they know that it was really Moses and Elijah. Well, I think that the nature of the conversation and the longevity by which they were listening in, it became evident 
to these three jokers that this was Elijah and Moses, they could have referred to each other. Hey, Mo. Hey, Elijah. Jesus. So they're having this conversation. So they're able to listen in long enough to know, to identify these two characters with Christ. Now, it's not an accident that we find that in this moment. And Jesus in this transfigured, glorified state, that it was Elijah and Moses that joined him to discuss an exodus. Moses in scripture represented the law. He was a hero to the Jews. The first five books of the Bible were penned by Moses. We called it the law of Moses. Moses represented the law, the Torah, the holy Jewish scriptures. Elijah represented the prophets. And this is not me conjuring it up. This was accepted within scripture. Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. And then it's not by accident that the one representing the law, which pointed to Jesus, and the one which represented the prophets, which spoke of Jesus, joined Jesus. Because we're told in Matthew 5, verse 17, that Jesus did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but came instead to fulfill. That Jesus fulfilled both the law and the prophets. Verse 5, then Peter. Peter answered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he said this because he didn't know what to say. And they were greatly afraid. You know, when I read through this, I really kind of feel as though Peter's winging it. I don't know if you get that, you know, man, it's great for us to be here. Um, come on, brain. Let's make three tabernacles. Jesus, one for you, Moses, and Eli like, I just get when I read through this that Peter's just jumping into it and he's winging it. The verbal blunders of Peter, like you could write a book on it. In this instance, there are two aspects to Peter's verbal blunders. Did you notice how the whole scene begins? That Peter answered. Did you see a question? Did anyone ask Peter a question? Not at all. We're told that Peter, in the moment, he answers. Answers who? God wasn't asking him anything. It wasn't as though Jesus, Elijah, and Moses are talking, and they turn, and they're like, hey, Pete, you're going to be the Pope one day. Why don't you chime in here on our conversation? Like None of this is, is, is making sense. So Peter answers, and then the best he can come up with, I mean, the best of, of all of the theology, of all of the, the historical context, I mean, in proximity to the awe of the moment, the best Peter can come up with to interrupt the moment Man, it's good that we're here. <laughs> Come on, man. Of everything you could have said, of any question you could have asked, the best Peter could come up with is, man, I'm just glad I'm here. Thank you for verbalizing that, Pete. Now, the problem wasn't that Peter said something. The problem was that Peter said something when according to his own account, which we get this account from Mark from Peter, 
It wasn't that he said something. It was that he said something when he didn't know what to say. And he admits this. He's like, I just jumped out, jumped out there. I'm like, it's good for us to be here. And then I, my brain just kind of went crazy and I didn't know what to say. And so this is what I came up with. This is Peter's own account of the story. Let me give you a little application. When you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Like, really. I have found that I've gotten myself into mo more trouble than it's worth. When in a moment, when I don't know what to say, I open my mouth and nonsense comes out. It's been said, it's better to be quiet and thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. Poor Peter. He should have just shut up. Now, to his credit, and Peter gets hammered, right, for this. To his credit, you, you got to say, James and John, they didn't jump out to say something. I mean, Peter was willing to take a risk. He was willing to jump out there. And sometimes Peter's risks led him to great blunders. Study his life. But you should note that in other instances, Peter's risky behavior, this part of his personality, it made him a great disciple. The difference, risky Peter and risky Peter doing good things, the big change for Pete was the power of the Holy Spirit. God is looking for disciples that are willing to take risks, that are willing to jump out there as long as it's brought under the power of the Holy Spirit and the directive of God. That was Peter's problem. So first, Peter answered. He shouldn't have answered. The other problem is what Peter suggested. This is the other aspect of his blunder. In suggesting that they erect three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter was placing Jesus on equal footing with both Moses and Elijah. Peter, just a few verses earlier, had made a glorious declaration of what? That Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And now, he doesn't refer to Jesus with any kind of divine terminology. He calls him rabbi or teacher, and he says, we need to erect three tabernacles. This was a blunder. We're also told, on a side note, that they were greatly afraid. That in this moment, in the presence of this glorified Jesus, that they were greatly afraid. This phrase, greatly afraid, is the Greek adjective, ekophobos, meaning to be stricken with fear or terror. This word is only used, by the way, in one other instance in the entire Bible. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, we're told, and so terrifying was the sight that Moses, the sight of what? Of God descending onto the mountain to give him the law. The presence of God descending down, surrounding Moses. The glory of God surrounding Moses. That so terrifying was this sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid. Ecophobos. And trembling. Terrified. Horror. Now it seems that the presence of God as well as the presence of Jesus in heavenly glory was enough to strike fear and terror into the heart of any onlooker. When John, in the book of Revelation chapter 1, 
when John encounters, John, by the way, who was present in this event, when John encounters Jesus, and the description is very similar to the description we're given here, we're told in his own words that he fell on the ground as if he were dead at the presence of Jesus. And we're gonna shelve that thought for one of our B-sides this week, but there's a powerful application there. Now, if the environment couldn't have sparked more fear, we're told that at this moment, here's Peter, opening mouth, swallowing foot to his kneecap, right? I mean, total blunder. In this moment, a cloud, it came and it overshadowed them. Like I'm thinking smoke monster and loss. Like I am freaking out at this point. I'm thinking, Peter, you have totally ruined this for all of us. A voice. So not is it just a cloud, but now a vo it's a talking cloud. The voice comes out of the cloud. And what do we read? This is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly they looked around. Everything else was gone. They saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now imagine the scene, the scene of activity. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. For these three Jews, this would conjure up all kinds of legend. Because in the Old Testament, the presence of God was referred to in multiple instances as a cloud. It was called the Shekinah glory of God. Shekinah is not in the Bible, but is the Hebrew word meaning dwelling or settling. It describes the settling presence of God. In Exodus 13, it was a cloud that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. In Exodus 34, it was a cloud that the Lord was in when he descended to give Moses the tablets of the law. In Exodus 40, a cloud covered and filled the tabernacle of meeting. In 1 Kings 8, at the dedication of Solomon's temple, we're told a cloud descended and filled the temple. We actually are told that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. And so they recognized that this cloud is the presence of God. And out of the cloud, God said two things. First, God affirmed a reality that the disciples needed to know. Peter had just finished referring to Jesus as rabbi. And God steps in and says, this is not just a teacher, Pete. It's not just a rabbi. He's not just a prophet. He's the son of God. This is my beloved son. To be the son of something means that you are of the same nature as that which you are the son of. I am the son of Sandy, specifically the son of Sandy and Kathy, which means that by nature, I have a combination of those two people and me. If you are the son of an elephant, you're not a giraffe. You are an elephant. If you are the son of a giraffe, you're not a monkey, you're a giraffe. If you're the son of man, you're the son of a man. But to be the son of God is a term that refers to not like a literal interpretation that Jesus was somehow like this weird combination of God's son as God and Mary and all that jazz like the Mormons would talk about. The idea of Jesus being referred to as the son of God, it means that Jesus was equal with God, that Jesus was God. 
So basically, this is God, Jesus. So God affirms a reality the disciples needed to know, and then God issues a command that the disciples needed to obey. Hear him, or literally, be hearing him. What Jesus has to say, it takes preeminence over everything else. It takes preeminence over the law, takes preeminence over the prophets. It takes preeminence over your parents or a teacher or a professor or your drinking buddy. What Jesus says, hear him above and beyond everything or everyone else. But note that there is a understood you in this command. Hear him. Who? You. You hear him. I don't know if you've found it to be the case, but I tend to be very good at listening, listening to Bible studies for other people. Like, have you ever found yourself in that kind of an instance where you're listening to a Bible study, let's say it's about pride, and you're sitting there, and you're looking down the pew, and you're like, I really hope that that prideful son of a gun is listening because this is spot on, and I think God is really trying to communicate something to him. You know, I found that at any moment that I have that reaction, that that should be an indicator that the lesson is not for the guy at the end of the row, but for me. And once again, there's lots we can unpack with this, but we're going to also shelve that to one of our B-sides. Now, as verse 9, they came down the mountain. Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. We found two censors issued by Jesus in the last 10 verses. There have been two occasions where Jesus has done something awesome, and then he's followed it up by, shut up, keep it to yourself, which seems to me really weird. Like the first censor was following Peter's declaration in Mark chapter 8, verse 21, that Jesus was indeed the Christ. Jesus, we're told, strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Wait a second, aren't we supposed to be telling people about Jesus? And here the disciples, they declare Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus is like, yes, shut up, keep it to yourself. Like, what? And then we see now here another opportunity that following the transfiguration, Jesus issues a similar command that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, initially, Jesus, he puts this gag order on the disciples because they didn't fully understand what being the Messiah really implied. And then for the last two weeks, as we've been examining, Jesus has been teaching them key lessons about the Messiah. Okay, you've affirmed that I'm the Messiah. You should keep that to yourself because you don't really know what that means. And so for the last two weeks, Jesus has been correcting these misconceptions. And the transfiguration and then the conversation that Jesus has with Elijah and Moses, Jesus is completing these lessons by finally pulling the veil from their eyes so that they could see Jesus as the Messiah for who he really was. So why now continue to place a gag order? Why tell them following such an awesome event to keep it on the DL? I think there are three reasons that Jesus issues a gag order on the disciples. First, 
The disciples, in order to represent Jesus, in order for the disciples to go into the world and tell people the good news of the gospel, in order for the disciples to fulfill the Great Commission, they needed to first have the power of the Holy Spirit, something they didn't have at this point. You should note that even after the resurrection, after they see and encounter the risen Lord, Jesus will continue to keep a gag order. He will tell them to return to Jerusalem, to shut up, to wait before they go out and represent him. Wait for what? Till the Holy Spirit comes upon them. You see, in order for them to represent Jesus, to communicate who Jesus was, they first needed the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is that they also needed to really understand what Jesus meant by the resurrection. Jesus says, wait till the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And then Mark tells us that they kept this word to themselves. They obeyed, but then they question. The conversation, the dialogue that's taking place is they're questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Like, what does Jesus mean here? This scene, this whole idea of resurrection, it perplexed the disciples, and for good reason, because here's the problem. What Jesus was saying concerning the resurrection it didn't jive with the conventional teachings of the Jewish religious leaders. The Jews. The Jews believed in what was referred to as a universal resurrection. This is what was taught. This is what the, the disciples believed. This is what had been communicated at church. This is what they saw within the Old Testament. They believed in a universal resurrection, that there would be one event where the righteous and the wicked would both be resurrected for judgment. But by saying, Jesus, that he would rise after three days, he appears to be indicating that there would not just be a universal or a one-time resurrection, but he seems to imply two separate resurrections. Now, Jesus doesn't get into this concept. The apostle Paul gets into it in great detail. But note a clue that what are they questioning? They're questioning what the rising from the dead meant. This can literally be translated with the rising out from among the dead the first resurrection. The first resurrection, according to scripture and Jesus, is that Jesus would be resurrected first. That after three days in the tomb, the day, the event in which we recognize this morning, that Jesus would be resurrected. But within the first resurrection, you have Jesus as the first of the resurrection, only to then be followed by those who are found in Christ, being resurrected from the dead also. Think of the first category, not as a single event, but more as a category. This resurrection, it would include Jesus, the Old Testament saints, the church, later on the rapture, the two witnesses in Revelation. And let me give you two passages that you can read on your own that validate this position. In Romans 6 verse 5, Paul says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, so we are connected to Jesus in his death, certainly we shall also be connected to him in the likeness of what? Of his resurrection. Philippians 3, Paul says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may also attain the resurrection of the dead. The first resurrection is Jesus and then anyone found in Christ. 
but there would be a second resurrection. That's a future event where those who have died rejecting Christ, who are not found in Christ, are resurrected and presented for judgment. And so why does Jesus tell them, hey, keep it to yourself? Well, they needed the Holy Spirit to represent him. Two, they needed to understand the resurrection because they didn't. Their theology was not quite there, had not progressed. But the third thing, and I think the most important reason, is that in order for them to truly represent Jesus, this transfigured Christ, they would need to first encounter a resurrected Christ. Peter, Peter is here at the transfiguration. This is something Peter watches. It's something he witnesses. Peter saw the real Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glorified, the heavenly Christ, and it undoubtedly made an impact in his life. But note that it was encountering the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Jesus, that changed Peter's life forever. Peter only writes once about the transfiguration in one of his two letters. He mentions it, that they were present on the holy mountain and they heard God say, this is my beloved son. Peter quotes this moment, but please understand that in every sermon we have that Peter gave, he never mentions the transfiguration, not once. However, every message that Peter spoke, it did include, as a matter of fact, it would climax at the resurrection of Jesus. Peter sees the real Jesus at the transfiguration. It made an impact. But seeing a resurrected Jesus, it changed him forever. In Acts 2, his first sermon, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, who you've taken by lawless hands, have crucified, have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that, she, that he should be held by it. His first sermon in Acts 2, he mentions the resurrection. His second sermon in Acts 3, he mentions it. His third sermon in Acts 4, he mentions it. His fourth sermon to the Sanhedrin in Acts 5. His fifth sermon to the Gentiles, to Cornelius in Acts 10, that God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through five, he also mentioned up that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's the point, the big point this morning. Hanging out with Jesus, this three years of bumming around, palling around, hanging out, eating, chilling, walking, Jesus and Peter. Peter hanging out with Jesus, hanging out with the people around Jesus, going to church with Jesus, fellowshipping with other followers of Jesus, all of these things, it made an impact on Peter. Sure, it did. Affirming that Jesus was the Christ, like finally reaching that point where Jesus says, okay, you've hung out with me, Peter, and I've rubbed off. I mean, you become who you hang out with. And then Jesus says, who, who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter says, you're the Christ. I mean, Peter affirms this and know that that was a turning point for Peter. And then seeing Jesus for who he really was in the transfiguration, I'm sure it left an indelible impression that Peter would never forget. So all kinds of things are impacting Peter, but the thing that changed Peter's life 
was not hanging out with Jesus, not chilling with the people of Jesus, not affirming that Jesus was God, not seeing the transfigured Jesus. The thing that changed Peter was encountering personally a resurrected Christ. It changed him forever. I hope you know that you can hang out with Jesus. You can come to church. You can rub shoulders with the people of God. You can hang out with Jesus. You can affirm Jesus is Lord. You can recognize him as God. But these things are never a substitute. They never make the impact that coming face to face with a risen Jesus will make. You think coming to church is enough or hanging out with Christians is good. All these things are fine. But the thing that changes a life are not those things. The thing that changes a life is meeting a resurrected Jesus because that is what changed Peter's life. Think about this for a moment. Peter witnesses this moment, this event, the transformed Jesus, Moses and Elijah, God, the cloud comes and overshadows them. He's there. He walks down off the mountain. I'm sure Peter is at a distance always thinking, is this gonna happen again? He never sees Jesus differently. He never sees Jesus the same. It changed the way he saw things. But even after, think about it, even after seeing a transfigured Jesus in glory, he would deny Jesus three times. He would deny Jesus. After seeing Jesus in glory, was that enough? It wasn't. Because when Jesus was arrested on three occasions, Peter said, I don't know the man. You don't know the man. You've seen him for who he really is. He would deny him. And yet, following the resurrection, would Peter ever have a problem denying Jesus? Not at all. Peter would boldly proclaim this resurrected Jesus. He would never shy away from the gospel. Even to the point that he was a martyr, that he died. He cursed out a little girl who said, hey, aren't you one of his followers? But then he stood boldly, boldly before the Sanhedrin and said, you have made a huge mistake. <laughs> and he committed into the Lord, into the Lord's hands, his fate. After the transfiguration, Peter rejected Jesus three times. After the resurrection, Peter died willingly, laid down his life. You see, the resurrection, the resurrection is the most important thing for you. In regards to your relationship or interactions with Jesus, it's not studying, it's not learning, it's not being around it, it's not worship. All of these things are good, but the thing that makes the biggest lasting impact is coming face to face with the resurrected Jesus. There's three things I want to close with about the resurrection. First, the resurrection of Jesus is essential to the gospel. Theologian Gerald O'Collins, he said in a profound sense, Christianity without the resurrection is not simply Christianity without its final chapter. It's not Christianity at all. Robbie Zacharias even went a little further than that. He said, if Jesus is risen, if he is risen, nothing else in this world matters. But 
If Jesus is not risen, then nothing else in this church matters. And that's the truth. The resurrection of Jesus, it's not optional. It's essential. Why? Because that's where real change begins. We should also note that the resurrection of Jesus is substantiated by history. Now, our previous Easter message last year, we've reposted it to the website. We examine this in much greater detail. Much greater detail. So if you have severe doubts concerning the historical examination or proof or validation scientifically, historically, scripturally about the resurrection. This is not what you're going to get this morning. You're just getting some cliff notes. Go and watch the message. It's about 50 minutes long, but it's a lot of data. And if that doesn't suffice, I'd love to sit down and talk with you. But here's the deal. We have tried in so many ways to validate the resurrection using science and using philosophy and using all kinds of vernacular and intelligence and theorems and proofs. We've gone to great lengths and it exists. But you know, in so many ways, we've missed as a church the most obvious. Sometimes we overanalyze things when the most simplistic examination proves to be the right one. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson went on a camping trip. After sharing a good meal and a bottle of wine, they retired to their tent for the night. About 3 a.m., Holmes nudges Watson, and he asks, Watson, look up into the sky and tell me what you see. Watson, he said, I see millions of stars. Holmes said, and what does that tell you? Watson replies, astronomically, tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and we are small and but insignificant. Horologically, it tells me, well, it's about 3 a.m. Meteorologically, it tells me we're going to have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes retorts, someone stole our tent. You see, sometimes we throw around big words and great theorems when in reality, the biggest proof for the resurrection is the most simplistic proof. Gary Habermas, who's the director of philosophy and theology at Liberty University, he says, here's how I look at the evidence for the resurrection. First, did Jesus die on the cross? And there's lots of historical evidence to say he did. Second, did he later appear to people? And there is lots of historical evidence to say that he did. If you can establish those two things, well, you've made your case for the resurrection because dead people don't normally do that. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, who was a Harvard law professor, he said, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. The resurrection, it's historical. But finally, the resurrection of Jesus, personally, is a game changer. It's been said that the empty tomb, as an enduring symbol of the resurrection, is the ultimate representation of Jesus' claim to be God. You know, no other philosopher, religious leader, 
great man of the day, not one other person dared predict a bodily resurrection. You have some that might have predicted a spiritual resurrection, but the audacity to, to claim a physical, a physical resurrection. It becomes very easy to prove that man was really who he said he was or nothing but a liar based upon the validity of that prediction. Jesus, he claimed not just that he would resurrect. And he could say a resurrection that's spiritual. And no one could say he, it didn't happen, right? But Jesus said, no, in three days I will rise and you will see me. The greatest proof of the resurrection, well, for me, is that I've met the resurrected Jesus. I've encountered him one-on-one, -on -one, and he's changed my life forever. And there are many people in this room, many people in this room, that also, in a moment, something happened in their life that changed them forever. And some of you can attest to it. That you were this way, and now you're that way. What happened? And we can point to a singular event where we met Jesus. Not a dead Jesus, not a spiritual phantom Jesus, but a resurrected Jesus. The Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. Charles Wesley, in a hymn titled, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Let me read it for you. Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say, raise your joys in trumpets high. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Lives again our glorious king, where, O oh, death, is now thy sting. Once he died our souls to save, where thy victory, O oh, grave. Love's redeeming work is done, fought the fight, the battle won. Death in vain forbids his rise. Christ hath opened paradise. So are we now, where Christ had led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him will rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Billy Graham said that the entire plan for the future has its key in the resurrection. The entire plan here, but you know what? The entire plan for you. The key is the resurrection. And so, Father, with that, we thank you for your word.